than me. Uh, he could have written that from Smyrna, the church to which we now turn. If you'd like a Bible and you'd like to go with me, we come to Revelation chapter 2, the second letter of the seven to the churches. I'll be covering this week and next. Uh, a shorter and sympathetic and tender letter that we read now from Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things say the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that we might hear what the Spirit said and what it still says to the churches. For indeed, all, all those who suffer in, all those uh, who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution and through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Even as we have enjoyed so many blessings in this country, uh, the fruit of the gospel, uh, of uh, liberty and righteousness and even as the climate in so many ways changes before our eyes, we pray that you would so prepare us and fit us that we too, bearing a, a bold and a faithful testimony of our Lord Jesus, might not be overcome, but overcome in this world of sin. May you make us all the more courageous and fearless and bold, not at all intimidated by our enemies, which is a sign to them of perdition, but to us of salvation, and that by you, O God. We pray that you would seal these words to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. When Christ calls a man, wrote Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he bids him come and die. To follow Christ, we are everywhere reminded, is to join him in cross-bearing. Jesus told his disciples, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than its master. If they persecuted me, which they did, they will also persecute you. And Paul simply says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Well, the CEO of Open Doors International, David Curry, gave us the only way out of such persecution. He said the only way to stop persecution in this fallen world is to stop talking about Jesus. And we don't encourage people to stop talking about Jesus. Um, perhaps the index of our peace in this country is the index of our silence. And the lack of persecution does place us only with the false prophets. But Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven both in the days of Smyrna and today, a life of godliness inevitably attracts a certain attention. It cuts against the grain, 
and it stirs up the outrage of the world. The fact that we will not go along with the spirit of the age condemns all those who do. No matter how gracious and how loving we are in standing up for this or for that, in not participating in this or that, our very existence in that state condemns others. As Jesus says, this is the condemnation. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Now, it's legitimate of us to be able to speak about the persecuted church. Uh, We think of those places in the world where our brothers and sisters are being systematically attacked with harshness and physical violence, even because of their faith. However, we must not limit our understanding of persecution to such extreme situations as North Korea and Sudan and so forth. No, Jesus says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. That is to say, wherever Christians are lied about or ridiculed, there also, in the Lord's own words, are per- we find persecution. Now, the New Testament was written by persecuted Christians for persecuted Christians, and it therefore has a great deal to say about it. It describes persecution in a great many ways. It it speaks of torture and prison, but also injustice and hardships, beatings and fear of danger, reproach, insults, shame and loss of opportunity, despair loss of property, having to flee or suffer exile, even, as we just read, death. It's quite a wide range of things, and it helps us to understand that it's different throughout the world. We experience things differently than our brothers in North Korea do, uh, of course. But Paul is very wise in saying that all who desire to live the godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And we consider this evening what it means what it meant for this ancient church of Smyrna, and what it means for us today to partake the sufferings of Christ. Now, the Christians in Asia were already in the midst of a great tribulation. After the fire of Rome in AD 64, Nero's fierce anger against the Christians had resulted in our religion being outlawed. But Honestly, it wasn't so bad in most of the places of the empire. His persecutions were largely confined to the capital city, beastly though they were. However, his successor, Domitian, was about to spread that persecution everywhere, and especially to Asia, as the center of that cult of emperor worship, as they worshipped the divine emperor, so-called. Nero's persecution had been more sporadic, but Domitian's would be much more systematic. The Christians were being slandered and insulted, but the real storm was about to break. The persecution would turn bloody with imprisonment and martyrdom. And would the church in Asia survive? Well, as we learned last time, persecution was only one of the dangers that the churches in Asia were facing. Uh, They also were facing corruption from within. False prophets and false teachers were leading the church astray. Immorality was contaminating the church in various parts. And because lawlessness was abounding, the love of many was growing cold. The church was in a tremendous conflict with persecution, with error, and with sin, fighting on those three fronts. And the source of those things is revealed with great clarity in the book of Revelation, 
a kind of clarity that we need to regain today. The origin of those sufferings was the devil. He was assaulting the church, seeking to destroy it in the same ways that he is seeking to do so today. Times change, but his assaults remain the same. Persecution, corruption, and immorality. The book of Revelation is understandable when it's seen as God's word to his servants in just such a situation. It's a call that we might be wise to endure tribulation and hold fast to the truth and resist the devil and bear a faithful witness despite all the raging of our enemies. Last time we considered the church in Ephesus and his call, Christ's call to return to the love that they had at first. I have this against you. You've left your first love. Remember, therefore, the height from which you've fallen and repent and do the first works or else, he says, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. We considered that there is no light without love. Only when our love burns can our light truly shine. Churches without that love will have their lampstand removed. I mean, they may still gather on Sunday. They may still congregate. Their ministers will minister. But the church is sunk in the darkness of death. And the first mark of the church we find here in the letters of Revelation is love. Well, if the first mark is love, we now find this evening that the second mark is suffering. And there's even, I suppose, a connection between the two that our devotion to Christ put the church and its members on a collision course with the world. As James says, to to become a friend of the world is to become an enemy of God, and the reverse is true also. And so we move now from considering the church in Ephesus, who was losing its first love, to consider this evening the letter to the church of Smyrna that was suffering a fierce persecution. Um, Ancient uh, Smyrna, by the way, is now called Izmir, city in modern-day Turkey, then uh, a rich and beautiful coastal city of uh, broad avenues, a thriving port, good roads. They boasted of being the, the pride of Asia. We don't know exactly when the church was founded there, although Acts mentions that while Paul was ministering some miles due south in Ephesus, that there Paul in Ephesus rented a hall, the Hall of Tyrannos, and he daily taught in the afternoon. And there it says, all Asia heard, heard the word. So it's very possible that some of those tradespeople who had come down with their wares or come to the port, they took the gospel back with them to the home city of Smyrna, 30 miles to the north. And early tradition says that Paul visited the town on the way to Ephesus at the beginning of his third missionary journey, though that's just speculation, I suppose. Um, nevertheless, uh, it was a very important city, and there the gospel was established early. Uh, however, around the same time, uh, sorry, around the year 25 AD, around the same time that our Lord is starting his ministry, the cities in the Roman province of Asia were competing with each other for the coveted favor of building a temple for the worship of Emperor Tiberius. That uh, privilege of building the first temple now to the cult of the emperor was granted exclusively to this city of Smyrna, as John Stott writes. The, the cult of the divine empire and emperor 
was now a matter of patriotic pride in Smyrna. Very soon, people would be required literally to bow down to the idol or the genius, as they called it, of the emperor to offer a sprinkle of incense on the fire that burned before it. And did the Christians refuse? Well, of course they did. That would be idolatry. And their unwillingness was to be interpreted as practically an act of treason. The pagans were against them. And the Jews as well. Of course, the uh, Jewish opposition was bitter, as we read all throughout the book of Acts, for instance, that wherever the name of Christ went and the apostles carried it, the, the, the Jews dogged their steps. It, it was they that were so jealous of the crowds when the Gentiles were thronging to hear Paul in Pisidian Antioch, and they incited some of the leading members of the city to drive Paul and Barnabas out. They pursued Paul to Lystra and Iconium, where they where they convinced the people to stone him. At Thessalonica, the Jews caused a riot. In Corinth, they vigorously opposed the word so that we read Paul shook out his clothes against them and protested, your blood be on your own heads. The Jews arrested Paul at the temple and nearly killed him. And when that attempt failed, they did their best to try again in various ways through secret plots and public accusations to put him to death. So the, the Jews in Smyrna uh, had long since been granted officially an exemption from having to participate in any of the Roman worship or the Roman cult. So they weren't part of this, but they were very free, therefore, to vilify the Christians who would not perform their rituals. And we know from history that the large Jewish community there continued for generation after generation after generation in Smyrna. Uh, they were some of the folks that gathered the wood for the fire for the burning of their famous bishop, Polycarp. The Christians were suffering in Smyrna from the pagans, and especially now we read from the Jews. Four trials we read as John Stott identifies them in the passage. First, poverty. I know you're poverty, but you're rich, says Jesus. Already in those days, the Christians in various parts of the empire had suffered looting. Uh, we read in Hebrews, for example, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly because you're made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly when you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. But some of the Christians had lost everything. Uh, early Christians in various places lost their families, their homes, and their lands in one fell swoop for Christ's sake. The trade guilds of the day were intimately tied up with the patronage of the Roman gods and worship and temples so that just converting to Christ might mean the loss of a job for no other reason than you are rejecting idolatry that was a part of the guild. It's hard today to be a Christian in the workplace. Poverty has been often part of the cost of discipleship, but it was very hard in those days in Smyrna. Poverty. Second, slander. I have in verse 9, I know the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. 
The Greek, Greek word is blasphema, which obviously comes right into our language. But the difference is, in modern English, when you say false and wicked things, terrible things about God, well, that's blasphemy. But when you say false and wicked things about other people, we call that slander. Um, the same word in the original, though, does both duties, and you have to tell by context whether you're lying about God or lying about men. So nearly all modern translations and writers take this as the Jews slandering the Christians. And I think that's right, and I think you might be able to see why this sentence is about the sufferings of the church. I know your tribulation, poverty, and I know the slander most translations have of those who say they are Jews and they're not. I think that's, I think that's right. Um, it's not so much a defect in the translation, by the way, in Webster's 1828 Dictionary, which I highly recommend to you. It points out that in older English, the word blasphemy was used to refer simply to the blaming or condemning of a person or thing. Uh, that is to say, the, the old King James translators could expect their original audiences to make a right use of the word to understand it as slander. But that's not what the word means in modern English. So, the Jews spreading slanderous, wicked rumors about the Christians. Okay. Jesus calls them a synagogue, not of the Lord, but of Satan. They had learned the devil's lying ways, in other words, from the master who is called the devil. Verse 10, his name is accuser or slanderer. And Jesus called him a liar and the father of lies. They were suffering from this synagogue of Satan. Uh, quite a vivid picture. An assembly of wicked slanderers and liars. Well, they were already suffering poverty and slander. But there was, the Lord warns, much worse about to come. Point three, prison. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, but you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. John Stott writes, the early apostles, including Paul, had seen the inside of many prisons. The cells of Jerusalem and Caesarea, of Philippi and Rome, had been sanctified by their prayers and praises and their prison darkness illuminated by Christ's presence. There was going to be about to be an official persecution, uh, a, a change in the climate so that Christians would be rounded up, uh, thrown into prison for a brief time, after which they could only await, number four, death, poverty, slander, prison, death. Verse 10, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And you know, there was no humane lethal injection in those days, right? You were burned at the stake, or you were thrown to the wild beasts in the arena. Um, with any kind of official death penalty, Rome invented the cruelest tortures in order to make an example to others. So, brothers and sisters, this is the life for Christians in that beautiful, wealthy city 
that celebrated city of Asia, poverty and slander, awaiting imprisonment and death, a call to suffer and to be faithful even to the point of death that Christ might give the crown of life. And I will point, pause here and say that this call to suffering is, of course, relevant to us today. Christians are ridiculed and slandered. Our religious liberty throughout the nations is constrained in various ways by laws, I think, intended to limit our influence in so many things. We have to keep our religion to ourselves in our modern, secularized Western world. Now, Christians are not beaten. We're not in prison, generally speaking, but daily we do feel the intimidation of a hostile society, and we worry about a a change in our fortunes that would bring official persecution. No. Of course, it's much more than that in other countries right now. Um, By way of comparison, it was estimated that uh, before the Christian faith was legalized under Constantine, 30 to 40,000 Christians were martyred for their faith. It was a particularly brutal death in those days, as I said. Many, many people, uh, in addition to such deaths, were exiled or lost their homes or worldly goods and families and so forth. So it was, it was hard to be a Christian anywhere in the empire, but thirty to 40,000 of our brethren were martyred for the faith under those persecuting emperors. In the 20th century, by way of comparison, about 45.5 million Christians have been killed, according to the World Christian Encyclopedia. Um, Another source says that in the 21st century, about 177,000 Christians are killed every year, uh, largely in South Saharan Africa, Indonesia, other places of rather extreme persecution. Another source says it's not 177,000 a year, it's more like 163,000 a year. I'm not going to quibble. It's never easy to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It never has been, it never will be. Some periods of history are especially difficult. We have lived in such a period. Many are facing very difficult situations, difficult conditions. Uh, Their faith is illegal. Even today in our country, Some of you are facing hard decisions at work, uh, a rising tide of misrepresentation and of slander, and and you fear, will there be some official declaration coming down from management, if not from the government itself, things that I'm not going to be able to sign? Will it be the end of my membership in the trade guild? What will happen to me? Others in other lands are facing the agony of prison and martyrdom. How are we to respond? Well, I have some things to tell you tonight, specifically about persecution, and some very encouraging things to tell you next week as Jesus himself gives the promise that's, uh, of his own presence and his reward that will remind us what we need to get through. Simply to say, the New Testament everywhere reminds us that suffering is the mark of the Christian. And Christ himself knows just what these churches are enduring. I I know your works, he can say in more ways than one. Your hard work, your perseverance. I know your affliction. I know your poverty. I know where you live. I know your love, your faith, your service. Christ is the chief pastor of his people walking in the midst. And he himself 
has experienced these very things. There are seven comforting encouragements that Christ himself brings to this suffering people we'll see next week. But Jesus has experienced the very same poverty and slander that this church has known, the very same arrest and execution that they are awaiting. I know, he says. And for the rest of the evening, we will consider why many people, therefore, including Martin Luther, have said that participating in the sufferings of Christ is an essential mark of the church. Why this must mark the true church in every age, in every land. Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus said, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The emphatic being used there, that is to say, theirs, not others, theirs and theirs alone. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And with many other passages, we are reminded of the certainty that we will participate in the sufferings of Christ. Jesus says, not if they persecuted me, they may persecute you. No, they will persecute you. We, 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 we tend to think, you know, if we were just more gracious, more winsome, if, if we were just more kind, if people understood more and more, they would be speaking well of us. But we are not to think that if we don't enjoy a good reputation that we have done something wrong. Clearly that is not the case. When goodness incarnate receives such a treatment from his own creatures. Neither can we make the church into a kind of community center where everyone will feel love and affirmation no matter what. If that were to happen, it would no longer be the church. Jesus says very pointedly elsewhere, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. It is an essential characteristic. Now, living as we do in a country with strong Christian roots, a gospel heritage, we, we have enjoyed a large, very large measure of acceptance in the world, even a, even a measure of cultural dominance, frankly, especially in previous centuries, but that certainly does seem to be on the decline. And we may find ourselves back in the situation that the Bible repeatedly reminds us is the normal situation of persecution. We are in an abnormal situation. But, but Peter writes... Beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. Okay? Not suffering very much. Enjoying some cultural hegemony. That's unusual. Very unusual. Partaking of Christ's sufferings? That's the norm. We, we do, of course. We're lied, we're slandered, we're misrepresented. But... We're going to be entering in, it looks like, to more and more of a normal situation. And we need to understand that. We, we might ask, why, O oh Lord? Why would you allow such persecution to come against us? Uh, uh, cl clearly, to the church in Smyrna, Jesus says it, it's coming. 
He, he says, you're already experiencing this. You're about to experience that. It's going to be a short and painful imprisonment, after which death. Why, Lord? What, what, what purpose would this serve? Well, uh, to finish the quote I gave earlier, Jesus says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Blessed are you. And he speaks there of a great heavenly reward and of a noble company to which we belong. Uh, here in the church, the church of Smyrna, the crown of life is held forth and so forth. Uh, the, the Bible describes many blessings, many beatitudes that come from this persecution. In fact, more than I can say, but I will name a few. God, God uses persecution to give us perseverance and character and hope. And as our suffering overflows, we're told, so will our comfort overflow in God. This will make us more mindful of him. It will focus us on Christ rather than sin. It'll take away Christian nominalism, which has, let's face it, corrupted the church thoroughly, especially in the West. Okay? Persecution has this great uh, effect that it just cuts out right, the dead wood like that. It's bringing disease into the whole living thing. God uses these sufferings of Christians to shape us into the image of Christ. These sufferings are a very important part of the all things that he works together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose, and by which he conforms us to the image of Christ. James reminds us that the testing of your faith is what develops endurance. And so Paul is not trivializing his pain or sorrow or struggle when he says that he can actually rejoice in his sufferings. He had a hard life. His pain and struggle was very real. But when the Lord said to him after many cries, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My strength is made perfect in weakness, as I read this morning. He therefore understands and says, well, I will take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is God's universal purpose. These are his universal purposes for Christian suffering. More contentment in God, less in self in the world. More reliance upon Christ, more uh, crucified to this world. Um, Just a century and a half on from this letter of Revelation, there's an early Christian work called The Octavius of Manichius Felix, And it it says, how beautiful is the spectacle to God when a Christian does battle with pain, when he is drawn up against threats and punishments and tortures, and when mocking the noise of death, he treads underfoot the horror of the executioner. When he raises up his liberty against kings and princes, and yields to God alone, whose he is. When triumphant and victorious, he tramples upon the very man who has pronounced sentence against him. For he has conquered who has obtained that for which he contends. God's soldier is not forsaken in suffering, nor is brought to an end by death. There was something amazing about to happen in Asia that was going to make their temples empty. It was going to make people detest the old Roman system. 
when they saw those Christians facing such a death, bearing such a brave testimony, despite all the raging of the heathen, before all the threats of the governors of Rome, they trampled underfoot those great men, and they said there is something far greater in this world, something that you cannot take away, which I am going to keep despite all that you can do. Or to give you a more modern illustration of this, remember I read to you the whole public letter of Pastor Wang Yi that he wrote from prison in China, or actually, right, I should say, right before he was arrested, he knew it was coming. He prepared it in order that when he was arrested, the world would know why he was suffering. He writes, Christ's great commission requires of us great disobedience. The goal of disobedience is not to change the world, but to testify about another world. And if God decides to use the persecution of this communist regime against the church to help more Chinese people despair of their futures and to lead them through a wilderness of spiritual disillusionment and through this to make them know Jesus, if through this he continues discipling and building up his church, then I am joyfully willing to submit to God's plans. For his plans are always benevolent and good, but the communist regime is now filled with fear at a church that is no longer afraid of it. You know why the, you know why the Chinese hate the Christian church so much? I mean, they hate the Uyghurs also, don't get me wrong, but, but why, and especially in these last couple of years, how they have, why they have launched such a ferocious attack against the church, uh, knocking down buildings, uh, setting up all kinds of uh, uh, social credit and other things to, to be able to identify and to expose the Christians. They fear a church that is no longer afraid of them. There is one greater to fear. The salvation of China is going to come in the same way as it came to Asia, through suffering. To bring the love of God to the world, the, the church will endure its hatred. And it's in this context that the biblical authors describe a spiritual warfare, or Revelation 12, how they had to overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony, not loving their lives to the death. In fact, uh, Samuel Lam in Guangzhou, China, he spent uh, 20 years in a communist prison because he refused to stop preaching. In America, he said, the church has experienced prosperity and is growing weaker. In China, the church has experienced persecution and is growing stronger. Persecution, he said, is much better than prosperity. Perhaps you feel sorry for the Chinese? Well, the Chinese feel sorry for you. Rather than thanking God as we might for living where we don't suffer, the Chinese think like the Christian in Acts, I think, they thank God for the honor of suffering for his name's sake. And that is a very challenging perspective, one that is foreign from us and from years past, one that we need to adopt. In conclusion, brothers and sisters, um, we, we, in times of persecution, will feel isolated, discouraged, that this, something terrible is about to break or that there's something wrong with us that we are facing such things. That is not true. And that is why it is so helpful to read of the ancient Smyrna church or, or the lives of the prophets or 
of the martyrs and Fox's martyrs, or of the stories of the reformers or of our covenanters in our own history, they believed what we believed. And look what they endured. And we're not isolated. We are not weird. God's people have had to endure such hostility right from the very beginning, even from righteous Abel. There is a mindset that we need to redevelop and rekindle. Look at the company that we are in. Look at the people to whom we belong. The author of Hebrews, he goes down the role of men and women who have suffered reproach for Christ and maintained their faith and says, Therefore, beloved brethren, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. And that is where we will come next week as we come back to this passage, as we see ultimately that the church is turned to look unto Jesus. A church like Smyrna that's going to be fighting for its very survival against such wicked persecution, it needs more than some moral exhortation. It needs more than an explanation of future events and what is about to take place. It needs Christ. And that is what Revelation is going to supremely show us from beginning to end, as a matter of fact, that there is Christ walking in the midst of the seven lampstands, among the churches, caring for them, with them, while he advances his victory in the world through them. The very first verse of this book is the revelation, not of John, but of Jesus Christ. The book ends similarly saying, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. The whole book is about him. And without him, we might have a prophecy of history, but we would not have a hope and a comfort. This book, as we turn next time, will show us the answer to all the raging of the enemies of the gospel, the one who's loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, the faithful witness who is not only the firstborn from the dead, but the ruler over the kings of the earth, to the one who has made us kings and priests, to his God and Father, to the one who is coming with clouds, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever, no matter what the world can do. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us um, an encouraging but realistic a biblical realism about the world in, in which we are living, that we may not be naive or foolish, but recognize the good hope that we have in Jesus, that we may appreciate this part of your word as you have commanded us to do, and to give us the courage and the holy ambition to be men of women who will stand, that will be able to say in the end of the day that we have stood we cannot stand without you. We are weak and we are frail. Gracious God, fulfill your good purpose in us and to you will be the glory forever in the church to all generations. By Christ Jesus.